That's a new song to me. That's profound. Beautiful. Thanks. Morning, friends. Um, my younger brother is a genius. No, seriously, literally, my younger brother is a genius. I don't know if they still do this in schools, but at least 60 some years ago, uh, when kids started school, they gave them IQ tests, and the school called after, or after Roger had taken the test and said his IQ was higher than the test would measure, so they were going to give him another test that would range higher so they could get a more accurate picture of his, of his IQ. He was reading when he was three. Now, lots of kids read when they're three, right? In fact, I remember a time when the pastor of my home church and his wife, who, who were good friends of ours, came over to the house, and he was sure that Roger was just reading the way a lot of little kids read. You know, they've, they've read this little kid's picture book so many times, they've kind of memorized it. And I remember my brother sitting on the pastor's life, reading to him the newspaper <laughs> fluently. So they had him start skipping grades in school. Fortunately, he never got up to my level, <laughs> which could have been really awkward, probably for both of us. Um, but I'll tell you this story, not about my brother, but because I want to tell you about my parents and how that affected them. I mean, my mom and dad were just average, blue-collar kind of folks. My dad had never even gone to high school, and when they got word and began to understand that one of their sons <laughs> was a genius. I mean, that was exciting and kind of awesome, but it was also really scary for them. And I remember their being really concerned about whether or not they could adequately parent a kid who was a genius. What would that mean? What would they have to do? I remember one of the things they did, we bought a set of encyclopedias. And so my brother would read the encyclopedia. And sometimes I know I've had the chance to recite some of the Christmas narrative from the Bible at our Christmas Eve services. My, my younger brother did that also when he was five. When I think about the sort of good, bad stress for my parents, I think about Mary and Joseph as they came to realize that their, their son was not going to be a genius. He was going to be the son of God, the creator of the universe, the king of kings and lord of lords. And I can imagine how that must have been a great sense of joy for them, but also uh, a lot of stress and anxiety as well. And during this Advent season, these weeks leading up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus, we've been focusing on some of the people involved in, in those events. And today we're going to be thinking about Joseph. And so we find the accounts of the birth of Jesus really in two of the Gospels, in Luke, which really tells the story kind of from Mary's perspective, and Matthew, who tells it a little more from the perspective of, of Joseph. And Matthew writes this, he says, so the birth of Jesus the Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. 
and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Marriage and engagement customs 2,000 years ago in Israel were a little different than they are today, particularly in the fact that there wasn't something that quite corresponds to engagement. It was the betrothal period, and it actually was a legal contract that was drawn up between the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom. In fact, they were the ones who chose these two people to be mated together. I, I hope the bride and the groom got some say in the matter, but it basically was something that was done by the parents of the couple. Think about that for a moment. How would things be if your parents had chosen who you were going to be married to? That's not a picture that I find pleasant in, in my life, you know, but that's how it was in those days. And so they would, they would actually sign this contract that began the betrothal period. The, the couple were actually referred to as husband and wife at that point, although they did not live together. In fact, they didn't even spend much time together for a propriety's sake. And it was during this period of time that was usually about a year, they each had responsibilities. The, um, the bride-to-be would begin to gather things that she would need for her household. The groom would also spend that time building a house for them to live in. And often, it's really been interesting in biblical archaeology, we find the foundations of houses from that period that are really, really big, lots and lots of rooms. And it was not that this was a mansion, it was where the parents of the groom lived, and each son would add on a room where he and his wife were going to live, and the house would stretch on and on and on. So it's during this period of time, the betrothal, that Mary becomes pregnant. And so she's gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth. She's come back. She's probably about four months pregnant, and Joseph realizes what has happened. Let's take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, and see how it describes Joseph at this point. Try to, try to put yourself, if you can, in Joseph's place. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So there were a couple options he could take. He could divorce her publicly, which would have been a big scandal. It meant meeting with the elders of the city at the, the city of gate, uh, the city gate, or it could be done quietly and kind of privately in, in the presence of a couple witnesses that that betrothal contract could be ended. 
And it says an interesting thing about here, about Joseph, doesn't it? Because he was faithful to the law. Joseph was a man for whom a priority was being faithful to God, following the law of God. We get some picture in the Gospels of what some people were like who followed the law. The Pharisees are the ones who come to mind, and their picture isn't always too kind. But there were a lot of people like Joseph, just ordinary people who desired in life to be faithful to God, to follow his law. I think maybe we in the church have a bit of a problem today, and and here's the issue with following God's law. I think we have so emphasized the grace of God, the fact that we're not saved by keeping the law, we're not sinless people, that we've sort of made keeping the law, living obediently to God as something that doesn't really matter too much. And we quote verses that say, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And so it's easy for us to kind of absorb the the mistaken feeling that really obedience to God doesn't matter too much. But it does matter. It matters incredibly. And it's not an issue of our salvation. We don't believe that we're saved by keeping the law of God. But I really believe that so much of our relationship with God hinges on our living a life of obedience to him, just as it would with a child, right, who disobeys his parents, her parents, again and again and again. It's going to affect that relationship, and there are going to be consequences to it. And so we find in the Bible that God stresses the fact that we are to live obedient lives, There's a really interesting story in the Old Testament involving Saul, who was the first king in Israel about a thousand years before Jesus, where he's been disobedient to God. He's offering some sacrifices, which he's not supposed to do. And Samuel, who is God's man in the situation, comes to to see Saul. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 15, 22. This is Samuel speaking to Saul. And he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In the book of Leviticus, written by Moses, you know, talking to the Israelites, and God speaks through Moses to them about what their life is to be like. And in Leviticus eleven fourteen, he says, be holy. This is God speaking. Be holy because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. The word holy actually means set apart or separate. It means that the Israelites were coming into a very pagan culture. And God is saying to them, you need to be separated from that. You need to live a life of obedience. And as Samuel says to Saul... I mean, obeying God is more important than offering sacrifices. And and I wonder if God doesn't sometimes say that to us. Being obedient to me is more important than coming together and singing worship songs. God calls us to live a holy life. Now, I would guess for many of us, myself included, there are areas of our lives where we struggle with obedience, where it's 
where it's hard to obey the law of God. We know what the right thing is to do, but sometimes it's really hard to do it. And the Pharisees, bless their hearts, had a practice that we've talked about at Orchard that I think just makes so much practical sense. There's a little book that I learned this from. It was called uh, The Pharisee's Guide to Holiness. And in it, it describes a practice that the Pharisees had of building a hedge. That is, if there's an area of sin and they wanted to avoid it, they wouldn't step right up to it. They would build a hedge around it so they'd know when they got to that hedge, they dare not go any closer to that temptation. It's sort of like coming up to the, to the, the edge, to the ledge you know, of, of a cliff and, and you could fall over. So what's the wise thing to do? To back up a couple steps. It may mean that the view isn't quite as spectacular, but oh, it is so much safer. And so if I'm really wanting to live a life of obedience to God, if, if there's a, an area where I'm really struggling, I would say the smartest thing we can do is to build a hedge around that. So for instance, let's say gambling is, is an issue for you. And so to build a hedge, you could say, all right, well, I'm only going to go to the casino once a week. I'm, I'm only going to stay at the casino for two hours, that's all. I'm only going to bet $100, and that's the limit. Well, that's kind of a hedge, but it may not be very effective. Maybe the hedge needs to be a little stronger and a little farther back. You know, maybe it means making some sacrifice in that area. It means... I simply cannot go to the casino anymore. Or maybe the issue is pornography. And so you could set some, some hedges. I'm going to be kind of careful about what I look at on my computer, but they may not be very effective. But there are hedges you could build. There are filters that you could have on your computer. Uh, it may limit what you can see, but... If you're really wanting to be obedient to God in this area, build a hedge. I remember years ago uh, when, when we put a filter on the computers here at church, and they were pretty, pretty strict. One year, it, one summer, I wanted to look at Sears patio furniture online, and the filter wouldn't let me. Apparently, there was a picture of the patio furniture with some women who weren't dressed well enough, I guess, or covered enough, you know, to get past the filter. So, yeah, it meant making some sacrifices, but it was certainly worth it to have that protection. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, when you're, when you're thinking about, this, about, about sin, if your eye offends you, what did Jesus say to do? Tell me, what did he say to do? Pluck it out. If your eye is causing to sin, you would be better off plucking it out. If your right hand offends you, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. It would be better for you to lose that hand or to lose that eye than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So Joseph was a man who cared about being obedient to the law of God. I would say that lesson carries through to us as well. And I would encourage you to take seriously your obedience to God's law. This passage in Matthew tells us something else really interesting about Joseph as well. Let's look again at that passage. This is Matthew 1:19. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet 
did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Isn't that interesting? Joseph is a man who wants to be faithful to the law of God, but he cares about Mary. He must have been so hurt. This woman he's going to marry is pregnant. She's pregnant. And what's he going to do? He could put her to shame. He could divorce her publicly. He could cause a scandal, right? You know, in those days, people who were involved in fornication, men or women, could be stoned. They could be executed for that. Joseph seems to have a tender enough heart toward Mary that he wants to handle this in the most discreet, kind way that he can. You know, I mentioned the Pharisees who were pretty concerned about keeping the law and in some ways did it very well. But Jesus says, but there's a problem here. All you are concerned about is keeping the law. Where is your heart? Where is your compassion? How are you like God in this area? In fact, there's a, there's a time when Jesus is talking with some of, the, some of the Pharisees and this is what he says. This is Matthew 23. Jesus is speaking and he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. It's good to keep the law, Jesus says. You're tithing down to tithing even these spices no, is a good thing. But he says, but you've neglected the heart of God in this issue. Where's your, where's your mercy? Where's your justice? Where's your compassion? And I, boy, don't you see this in our culture today that we sort of dig in our position and you may be right in it and it may be a biblical position, but when it's lived in a way that has no compassion no caring, that doesn't manifest the heart of God, I think Jesus would say to us, you know, that's, that's fine that you're trying to keep these laws, that you're trying to live biblically, but if you're doing it without love, man, what's the point? What's the point? And so Joseph, in his desire to keep the law, wants to do it in a way that's going to cause as little pain and embarrassment for Mary as possible. And so that's when God steps again into the picture to explain things to Joseph and to tell him what he is supposed to do. Let's go back again to the first chapter of Matthew. This is Matthew 1.20. So after he had considered this, after he'd thought about how he's going to handle this situation, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel says, Joseph, this is, this is a tough situation, he says, but you don't need to be afraid. What did Joseph have to be afraid of anyway? I mean, it's Mary who ought to be afraid. She's the one who's committed adultery, it seems. What did Joseph have to be afraid of? Well, 
when you think about what it was like for Joseph, so Joseph was a carpenter. He was a, a builder, which is really more what that word means. He was in business for himself. How many people are going to hire this adulterer to be their carpenter? When, when Joseph took Mary as his wife, what would be the assumption of 100% of the people in Bethlehem as to who the father of that baby was? Of course, it's Joseph. Look, he's gone ahead and married her. That reputation stayed with Joseph his whole life. In fact, it even carried over to Jesus. There's a point later on in Jesus' life. So this is like 30 years later. And Jesus is talking to, to some of the people who are being critical of him. And he's talking about, you know, Abraham, his father. And these people say, well, you know, Abraham is our father. You know, at least we know who our father is, wink, wink, implying, Jesus, we don't even know who your father really is, because right? maybe it wasn't Joseph. Maybe your mother had fornicated before they got married. Joseph is going to carry that stigma with him the rest of his life. And not only is there that danger to his reputation, there is physical danger as well. He could have been stoned if people had believed that, that he was the, the father of this baby. He and Mary both could have been executed. Now, what do we know happens shortly thereafter that when the, when the wise men show up and Herod finds out that a new Messiah has been born, their lives are in danger and God tells them to get out of Bethlehem and go to Egypt where you'll be safe for a while. Well, there was a lot for Joseph to be afraid of. And the assuring words of the angel must have been so important to him. All right, Joseph, you know, I know this is tough. But you don't need to be afraid. God is going to help you through it. And so why would he do it? I try to put myself in Joseph's place. Why would he, why would he go ahead with it? And again, I think we find in this first chapter of Matthew the key to that. So we're going to go back again to verse 20 and 21. It says, you know, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus. And here's the phrase I want us to think about. Because you will give him the name Jesus, which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel doesn't say... Your son is going to free us from Rome. It talks, doesn't talk about all the kinds of things that people expected that the Messiah might do. The angel says he's going to do the most important thing. He's going to save his people from their sins. I'm not sure what brought it to mind. Maybe it was inspiration. Maybe it was reading this passage. But I remembered an incident that happened to me back when I was pastoring in Des Moines. And there was a, a young man, a boy, seventh grade, I think, might have been eighth grade, but it was, it was junior high age. He'd been raised by a single mother, and his mother was dying of cancer. And he and I were at the hospital, and we were sitting in the, in the lounge area. People were down with his mother in the room as she was taking her last breath. 
And we just sort of sat there in silence because it was like there was just nothing to say. Soon they came down and told Tom, uh, your mother has died. Would you like to come down to the room now? And so we stood up and we started to walk down that long hall to the room where her body was. And he put his arm around me and I had my arm around his shoulder. And the grief and the pain and the loss were so heavy, he almost couldn't walk. And I almost literally had to carry him down the hall as he leaned all his weight against me. I bore the weight of his grief and loss. And I don't mean to compare myself in any sense to Jesus, but, I, but it helps me to understand what, it's, what it means when it says that this one who came to save us from our sins, he bore our sin on himself the weight of our grief and loss and rebellion and separation from God, he bore that weight for us as he carried that crossbeam of his cross to a hill called Golgotha. And I don't know how fully Joseph would have understood the word of the angel, but enough to know it was worth it. It's going to be worth the sacrifice. It's going to be worth the the loss of reputation, it's going to be worth all the danger that we might face because this child who's going to be born to Mary is going to save people from their sins. And so the final phrase that it mentions there, it says that he, that's Joseph, he gave him the name Jesus. Nobody had the right to give a child a name except the father. And in giving him this name Jesus, Joseph shows that he understood why Jesus had come, and he was taking him as his own, you know, taking him as his son, who would be the savior of the world. I want to be a man like Joseph. I want to be a man for whom keeping the law matters. I want to be a man who lives my life in a way that manifests the compassion in the heart of God. I want to be a man who understands that Jesus came to save us from our sins. I want us to be that kind of a church. I want you to be that kind of a people. Let's pray. I suppose we can't really totally understand what it must have been like for Joseph. What an amazing guy. And how great that he was willing to take upon himself the responsibility and all that came with it for rearing the Son of God as his own son. May we learn from him and from his example. May we live more in that way. We pray in the name of Yeshua. Jesus, the Savior. Amen.